Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Commodity Director for the Alabama Farmers Federation. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production system. I'm super excited to restart our podcast, our Cow Talks podcast. Chris has been missing in action for a little bit. And our first podcast, Restarting, is with Dr. Kim Mullenix. I'd just like to introduce Dr. Kim Mullenix to the podcast. She's a uh, animal science extension specialist here uh, at Auburn University, and uh, she spends a good bit of time talking about preconditioning systems and, and how we can better use forages and, and, and byproduct feedstuffs in these systems. Awesome. Kim, is a pleasure. We've known each other for such a long time, and it's always a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for the introduction. It's glad to be here today. Yep. We're excited to uh, break into a new topic, um, focusing on preconditioning to uh, really get in depth and how we can manage and improve preconditioning systems in the Southeast. So I think we'll start, start it off just thinking a little bit about preconditioning systems and, and, you know, going back to the original reason about why we precondition in terms of um, looking at, uh, you know, going through the major stressors that occurred during that weaning phase and trying to reduce sickness. I think as we've looked at studies, um, you look at that weaning phase and, and, you know, if we do the traditional method of just weaning those calves, sending them directly to a backgrounding or preconditioning or a, a, a feedlot in the Southern Plains, uh, in the Midwest, they have really, really, uh, bad health situations a lot of times um just throwing some uh some numbers at it there's you know if if we take them straight off the cow and ship them to the midwest their health costs are about four times greater than those calves that we precondition um that's one of the main reasons that gets me excited about preconditioning is just uh having a healthier animal not just uh on our farms but uh as we move forward in the system getting in them to a backgrounding yard getting them to the feedlot and then finished they still got a lot of days left before harvest and uh i want to make sure that they're healthy um so they can so they can perform well for us and be profitable throughout the entire system so chris before we get into that uh do you want to describe what would be the typical system in terms of uh what happens after weaning or how is the weaning yeah. And what happens to those animals? Typical system in the southeast yeah. here, um, Alabama, Georgia, Florida. Absolutely. So I think our typical system is, you know, as we think of tradition, it's going to be weaning straight off of the cow. Uh, a lot of times these calves, probably the majority of them have not been vaccinated. So um, they would probably be weaned straight off the cow, uh, maybe sorted prior to going to the stockyard. Um, so they, they're weaned off the cow, they're, you know, moved into a, a, you know, cow pen, they're trucked to the stockyard, they go through additional stressors at a stockyard, and then following that, they're going to be, you know, purchased by order buyer and then shipped to a, um, 
a uh, preconditioning or a, an order buyer's yard. They'll be worked from there and then probably sent to their uh, next destination, which is probably in the Southern Plains or Midwest. So I think we have a, a lot of stressful events here that uh, as we think about stress on the animal, this is what potentially causes those health issues or their, their higher health expenses. Um, Kim, would you add to that in terms of thinking about the traditional, um, you know, traditional system in the Southeast? Is there anything? Yeah, I, I think that what you described is, is exactly right. And what we commonly see uh, whenever we talk about this with our extension agents, something that we like to say is that you think about the calf being weaned on diesel fuel. <laughs> so that means that they're immediately separated from the cow, loaded onto a trailer and then taken to be sold. And then when we commingle those animals from different environments, that's what really increases that risk for a disease and also their immune system. We have to think about what's going on with that, that immediate separation from the cow, the stress of that dropping their immunity and then being commingled with animals from other environments just really increases that susceptibility. So we're interested then in looking at that time period to figure out ways we can minimize those stressors and ultimately that translates into the production and that preconditioning phase and their performance and health. Yep. So we have the the physical stress, we have psychological stress from them being weaned from their dam. And then we also you also have like just combined anxiety from all these you know, right. just changes new happening. Environment. Yeah, new environment. You're just not in the same system that you spent the first six, seven, eight, nine months of uh, these calves' lives. Kim talked a little bit about the immune system there, but our, our benefit out of this is just reducing that stress load um, and trying to get them where they're, they're not going to need those additional expenses in terms of antibiotics, in terms of additional treatments, pulls, labor, um, and just trying to get them where they're, they're healthy, productive, to move on to those. They're still going to go to those next phases of production in terms of backgrounding in the feedlot, but we want them to, whenever we send them to those environments where they don't have any health issues. So we've already prevented that. So what would be the, the typical process, uh, weaning process, and start the precondition uh, on our farms before we send them out? What would be the, the recommendation, the general recommendation? Yeah, so I think as we think about the transition from weaning to preconditioning, if we're focused on ways to try to reduce those stressors, um, some recent research that we've done actually has shown looking at fence line weaning as an opportunity where we can reduce that stress during the weaning phase and help those cattle transition into the preconditioning or the backgrounding period. So what that means is that the cow and the calf, they can still have some contact. They may be literally separated by a fence, but they can see each other or at least vocalize to each other. That helps reduce the stress on that calf by still being able to see its dam. It also helps the dam adjust to not having the calf by her side anymore. And then what that does is they become easier to transition into that preconditioning phase. So getting them used to being in a pen or a pasture by themselves, getting them on to feed, helping them learn how to drink water, recognize all those functions as part of the preconditioning system. So I think that's one strategy that we can use to help be able to move into that preconditioning period. Uh, if, if we look at that kind of compared to the traditional system of if we just abruptly separate that calf from the cow, 
And then we have those animals that are in a pen. If we're keeping them on our farm, they're going to have a harder transition to be able to overcome that separation. Okay, so they're going to be very focused on where's mama. I want to get back to mama. <laughs> and that distracts them, so to speak, from being able to get that transition onto forage and feed and water intake. And when we don't have that immediately in front of them and they're too focused on where's mama, that's when that immune suppression can start to occur. So I think that's kind of a contrast that we see between those two approaches. Uh, but anything we can do to minimize that stress in that window is going to help make that transition easier. Yeah. A couple more things that I think about is, you know, uh, prior to preconditioning, thinking about 45 to 60 days before, do begin to, uh, cons you know, think about, you know, having some solid feeds out there for them to, uh, to learn even from their dam, whether that is consuming some feedstuffs, um, you know, are, have these calves been bunk broke? Uh, do they, they know how to consume water from a water trough or have they only been drinking from ponds uh, or streams or something like that? For them to know whenever we put them in this secure location, how to drink water, how to eat feedstuffs, how to, you know, graze high quality forages, things like that are, are so critical for us. I'm a big proponent of uh, creep feeding, but not in the way that we traditionally think about creep feeding where they have access to, you know, full feed. I, th I think there needs to be some type of uh, system implemented where they're only given, you know, uh, a small amount of feed stuff, but uh, so it gets them you know, coming to you, developing a, a little bit of a behavioral relationship with, uh, um, with the person as well. So I think those are, those are keys. The other thing I'd say is, uh, whenever these are home raised calves, we start thinking about preconditioning systems. I think we have the opportunity to go ahead and give those pre-weaning vaccinations four to six weeks ahead of time. And then again, booster them at, uh, at weaning. Uh, another thought that comes to mind is, uh, you know, just making sure we have that free choice mineral um, and vitamin mixture because uh, they're going to use so much of that in the, that immune system, in that functioning in order to deal with the additional stress. Same thing as our forages. If the nutrition is not balanced, there is more mm -hmm. stress. There is more more chances of pests yep. and diseases and in, in decline. So, Chris, you mentioned you mentioned 45 days prior to prior to the to weaning to start changing a little bit changing the diet changing the diet bit. getting them yeah. acclimated to that yep. uh, but talking to farmers there is a huge range in terms of when they are weaning mm -hmm. so what what would be the typical or, and what would be the recommended weaning time so i and i'll just mention this is like uh one there's no preconditioning plan you know, right, there's no standard. I, yeah, there's no standard for preconditioning. Gonna... Um, just like I don't think there's a standard for weaning. Like if you if you ask me if we have the cow in that body condition score six, then I'm probably not thinking about weaning until eight, nine months. You know, that's kind of nine months would be kind of be my target eight to nine months. But if we're below six, then we have to start thinking about weaning, you know, seven maybe even six months of age, just depending on body condition score of the animal, because making sure that animal can stay reproductively sound in a herd is so critical. Um, what are your thoughts in, in terms of, I guess there's, that's my optimal scenario, right? That's not maybe, you know, what's in practice by most producers, 
I'm not saying th they should do it based on their body condition score of their cow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in terms of months of age, the seven to nine months of age would be what we typically see among most producers here in Alabama. Uh, if you look at it on a weight basis, if we go back and look at the historical trends for weaning weights of cattle through our Beef Cattle Improvement Association here in the state, the average weaning weight of cattle is usually around 525 pounds. Um, it's fluctuated up and down a little bit, but overall that that's a good 30-year average. And I would say the majority of those cattle are around seven to eight months of age to equal that weight basis. And so we'll probably talk a little bit more about you know, weight targets and things like that later on, but kind of that mid 500 pound range and then working those cattle up to 700 or above is where a lot of folks like to be during that preconditioning period. Uh, so that's another way to think about it too, is kind of not only age, but a target weight basis for the calf. So good. Two targets we need to, two things we need to be paying attention then would be the cow body condition score, because we don't want to to bring that cow down too much, well, especially if we're limited in terms of feed, which happens frequently. She's and then got the a target. calf again in three to four months. So we got her having her in a good place. Um, so as we start this preconditioning process, uh, Dr. Melanex, what do you think about uh, the balanced diet that we are providing these calves? I think as you get cattle started in the preconditioning phase, one, you're just very focused on getting them eating. Okay, so the sooner we can get them eating, the less susceptible we're going to be to some of these disease issues that we talked about. So we want to make sure that they have a high quality diet in front of them. And the majority of that diet is going to be based on forage. So we want something that's going to be very palatable to the animal, something that has high digestibility and at least moderate protein value to it. And then we can also look at adding in some supplemental feedstuffs along with that. So if we're planning to feed these cattle commodity supplements as part of that backgrounding program, we want to be introducing those, whether that's in those 45 to 60 days prior, like you mentioned, Chris, or at least as we begin the preconditioning phase, we want to start putting feed in front of them and incrementally increasing that to our target. Mm -hmm. um, so one question around that then is what is, highly palatable forage. What does that look like, right? Uh, so it can be two things. One, it could be grazing-based systems, or we could be looking at dry lot systems where we're providing that forage either as hay or baleage in that situation. But typically we want something that's going to be at least 55% TDN or total digestible nutrients and probably a minimum of 9% crude protein or higher. Um, I think those are good targets because we know that in those ranges, the cattle are going to want to eat that over something that's much more mature. So uh, I like to think about it of if I'm putting out something that I don't think looks palatable, it's probably not going to be palatable to the animal. Um, and same from the standpoint of, of your grazing pasture. So want to make sure we have adequate forage, dry matter out there for them to graze. If you walk out into your pasture and it looks like a golf course, and they simply cannot eat enough out there to meet their needs. So um, just using kind of some practical visuals like that of, one, do I have adequate grazeable forage in this pasture for my cattle? Two, does it look like it's going to be something that's palatable to eat? 
this is something I really like talking to to the producers about because now we're merging both quantity and quality. When we were thinking about the cow, only many times we're thinking about the quantity mm-hmm. that we're thinking about that bahia grass system and that cow hay in the winter. But now we bring the calf in, the the, the, the wind calf. Now we need to really pay attention to the to the quality, and that leads to the timing of the year because depending on our calving strategy, is we're going to be weaning those animals at certain time of the year, and we we need to make sure we're matching that time with when we have the best quality and quantity of forage available. Yeah, and I think that kind of that kind of goes for me back to uh, back to the annuals because thinking about the annual system, we can kind of we can plan it. We can you know it can be planned in terms of uh, putting those annual forages in for typically when we were going to need them for grazing uh, for this preconditioning period. Um, so, Doctor Mullinex, uh, I think we've we've talked about it before, but. Uh, can you run down just like uh, some some positives and negatives of because I know in some of your studies you've looked at uh, pasture base versus the dry lot preconditioning systems. Um, sure. Can you give me any any traditional thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So in a lot of the studies that we've done on preconditioning, we were looking at fallborn calves that were then weaned in the spring of mm-hmm. the year, late spring time frame, May. And then we were backgrounding those cattle June through August. Okay, so what grows June through August here in Alabama, Chris? What do you think? Crabgrass. Okay, crabgrass. What else? <laughs> Bahia grass, Bermuda grass, highly lignified warm season perennials. Um, you also have some some you have some potential for uh, medium to high quality warm season annuals like sorghum, Sudan grass, pearl millet. So right. you have some some good stuff, but uh, it's not like the cool season annuals uh, right. that we wish we were probably preconditioning on. That's right. Um, yeah. So we've made the shift then from those high quality cool season forages that we were grazing into kind of more moderate to even lower quality in some cases on the warm season perennial grasses. So we were interested in looking at uh, warm season annual based grazing systems with or without supplementation versus dry lot systems. And in the dry lot systems, we were either feeding a Tifton 85 Bermuda grass hay based diet or looking at using cool season annual baleage. So trying to get some carryover, so to speak, of that high quality cool season forage by offering that in a dry lot based system. Um, So some things that we saw in our studies looking at the dry lot versus the grazing based systems. Uh, One is the time of the year has a a big influence regardless of what type of diet, whether that's feeding stored forage plus supplement or grazing plus supplement. We typically had better gains earlier in the summer than later. So as we push into the the August and even September timeframe, in some cases, Uh, The effects of our environment, the humidity and the heat typically set us back in terms of gain. So early in the season, we would be around two to two and a half pounds per day of gain on these calves. And then we may back up to half a pound to a pound and a half as kind of the range we would typically see as we move into late summer. Uh, If we break it down and look at the dry lot systems versus the grazing systems, we were really pleased uh, with what we observed in either dry lot diet. Uh, So we were feeding 
Tifton 85 Bermuda grass hay plus 1% of body weight per day dried distiller's grains. For our cool season baleage was a mixture of oats, ryegrass, and crimson clover plus 1% body weight per day dried distiller's grains. Uh, so as I mentioned, overall, the, the average daily gain across a 60-day background and period on either dry lot diet was around 1.75 to 2 pounds per day average daily gain, which we felt like was a good value, particularly for that summer production, like we said. But something important that I feel like we noted uh, whenever we were feeding the baleage in those dry lot systems during the hot months was that you want to make sure that that bale is disappearing within about a two-day yeah. time frame. Okay, so as it sits out in the heat, it's going to start to spoil. It's very palatable to the animals, but if we go much longer than that, then we may have wastage mm -hmm. on it. So making sure that your feeding pressure matches getting rid of that baleage quickly, I think is an important takeaway that we've learned as we tend to start doing more backgrounding with yeah. baleage in our diets. So timely feeding, mm -hmm. uh, so critical whenever in that dry lot situation. Uh, I think one of the things I think about when I think about the pasture versus the dry lot is, um, you know, I think staying in a very similar environment on the pasture versus a, the dry lot Bring situation. Dry lot. Yeah. Um, I understand the benefits of the dry lot in terms of one of the reason a lot of people don't precondition is because uh, they have a set acreage. They've maximized their cow herd and they don't have anywhere to go with their feeder calves. So I think that's just one thing that we have to think about long term um, on pasture based preconditioning systems that we we have to to allocate and dedicate something to preconditioning Um it just ju slightly jumping here, but I think one of the, the benefits that we have going forward, if we precondition, we don't have to sell them at 60 days. Right. Um, yeah. You know, as, as feeder calf prices, look, look what they've done this year. It was every single month. We didn't just make new highs. We made $10, hundred weight jumps. Um, so whenever I think about preconditioning systems, I think we can, uh, just take advantage of just being able to put weight gain on the animal, but also put weight gain on at a increasing price in terms of that value of gain being very, very high um, for us in, in 2023. And I think there'll be another run as we, uh, as we get out there further, because we, you know, uh, we've talked about it before, just not, not really much supply out there in terms of feeder calves, no expansion really taking place on the, um, on the, the outlook right now. Uh, one other thought that comes to mind when I think about pasture base versus dry lot, uh, they they typically the literature would say the dry lot's going to have better gains um, controlling that diet, but it's also more expensive gains typically. Um, whenever I think about in, anytime we uh, evaluate, you know, grazing of even summer annuals or summer perennials uh, versus feeding baleage or or Bermuda grass hay, you know, the 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 uh, supplement didn't change in in any of those rations but the hay versus grazing grazing is always going to be cheaper for us um so that's just another consideration for us to make yeah grazing in general is cheaper but i was just thinking here in terms of a, a scale of risk because grazing normally is the less risky in terms of market mm -hmm. but also grazing especially when you're doing annual forages is they're probably they're riskier in terms of 
weather conditions, mm -hmm. things uh, which also you cannot control unless you have irrigation. And we can take a look into what is happening in, in Alabama now that's very, very dry. And probably our annual forages here have been struggling to, to, to get and go. And so timing, timing that, making sure that you get a good, good forage, good pasture when you need, but also have a backup plan because if you're depending only on that and it backfires, it, there is, well, you yeah. can go for the, for the feed too is a high feed cost or, or low rainfall. Then it can be a, can be a big yeah. issue. So summer annuals, um, you know, that I've planted this year, I, you know, total cost of production, I have them at about $50 per dry matter ton. Um, and there's not any, you know, any, uh, feedstuffs or, or, uh, anything of similar quality that's going to be anywhere close to them this year. Um, we have had success cause we've had adequate rainfall in my area of the state. Um, so it is about getting them established and getting adequate rainfall on. But even if we, if you throw a, a really bad drought year in there with summer annuals where you just get a moderate amount of grazing, if you only get a third, you're still at $150 per dry matter ton. Um, that's competitive. Soy holes delivered to the farm right now are, are over $220 a ton in central and southern Alabama. So I still think they're very cost competitive, but at the same time, if you don't have a good production year or you're not good at you know establishing and planting the summer annuals, you just take that those additional funds and you add them to the, uh, we could have supplemented at higher rates. Yeah, and that that's actually a point that I wanted to make. And as we've gone out and kind of talked about some of this research data with folks, you know, that was one of the takeaways from producers is just that, look, the gains may have dropped off for you during this time of year, but I could have afforded to increase my supplement during that period of time to maybe help bump that gain back up to where I want it to be and or hold those cattle a bit longer to meet the target weight that I want to market at. So I think the grazing gives you some options in terms of being able to fluctuate a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, and we can also think about kind of hybridizing these two approaches together. We're talking about dry light and pasture as two separate things. Mm -hmm. But what happens if we need to be able to extend that forage on pasture? We can always bring in some stored forage yep. to feed that on pasture to help stretch those supplies. Be able so, to do either. Yeah. Kinda, so yeah. we have some options to be able to yep. stretch when we need to, which I think is an important mm -hmm. part about these forage-based systems in the Southeast. Yeah. What, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, some of these high-quality forages that we would be thinking about uh, for the summer annual type deal. It would be sorghum Sudan grass, Sudan grass, pearl millet, um, you know, some, some legumes. I, I, sun hemp has been one that's been implemented in Florida in preconditioning systems. Forage soybeans comes to mind when I think of uh, some producers in South Alabama, um, you know, and on the cool season side, if we have a, like a, maybe a non-traditional preconditioning system compared to Alabama, you know, annual ryegrass is the, is the thoroughbred. Uh, and then oats is, is, is our number two in terms of if we really thinking about preconditioning some calves on some annual forages, um, you know, but novel into fight tall fescue, uh, think, you know, we've, we've seen studies that have, uh, pretty good gains with novel into fight tall fescue for our non-Florida folks uh, that are in the southeast. Um, uh, you know, that's another consideration on forages. I don't think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with oh, with Bahia grass, Bermuda grass, Dallas grass, throw some Johnson grass in there. Um, I don't think, you know, we can potentially precondition on those, you know, 
perennial base forages with this adequate supplementation. So I don't think there's anything wrong with our base, but we probably would just need higher levels of supplement. What are some of those uh, highly palatable feedstuffs that you would like to see in preconditioning systems? Uh, so I think we have a lot of options in the Southeast on feedstuffs that we can integrate into these background and systems. A lot of those tend to be byproduct feedstuffs. So byproducts of our row crop industries, secondary products come in from that that can be used in pasture-based systems. Uh, specifically, things that I've seen to be most successful are typically higher energy supplements uh, that have moderate protein value to them. So those are going to be things like our soy hulls, uh, corn, corn gluten, dry distiller's grains are probably mm -hmm. the top four that I would say I have most experience with. Uh, that's not to say that other feedstuffs can't be used. You yep. know, uh, people are really innovative and and can find different feeds and figure out ways to integrate them into those systems too. Whole cotton seed molasses are two of the other ones that come to mind whenever I think about North Florida, uh, uh, South Alabama. It's South Florida is yeah. also yep. a lot of molasses being fed there. And mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then you have citrus pulp pellets as two. Citrus um, pulp pellet. Uh, not near as many as we used to have, but uh, that's there's still some uh, available for producers. It's uh, it's interesting talking about South Florida. I always ask about rice bran, mm -hmm. which is something that we use a lot back in Brazil, back in our place, because my state is a high um, rice producing area. And it's very seldom used, but it's it's uh, it's a supplement that has impressive amount, impressive mm -hmm. quality, high high in oil content, so high in fat, but also pretty decent protein in energy. Mm. Um, you know, we talked about this. Uh, you know, getting the preconditioning system started. We talked about the forages. We talked about the feedstuffs. You know, uh, we talked about providing a free choice mineral. Um, let's talk a little bit about the water. You know, uh, we talk about all these other nutrients. Water's their most critical nutrient. They don't have water. They they don't care about the forages. They don't care about the feedstuffs. They're not going to care about the mineral. Uh, not just quality, but also quantity of water. Uh, or not just quantity, but also the quality of water that's available to them. If we if we look at some studies, I think we we can see anywhere from like half a pound to a, a full pound average daily gain between you know a high quality, fl uh, clean, fresh. Uh, well water compared to some ponds that have a lot of gunk, uh, you know, stagnant, not moving system that, you know, the calves have uh, potentially already, you know, cows and calves have already been in, defecated in. Um, you know, it's it's so absolutely critical whenever I think about the water requirements uh, on quality and quantity. The other thing that, that comes to mind thinking about water is um, we don't think about it in terms of that quality aspect, but the uh, nutrient uh, availability to convert those nutrients are based on, you know, the quality of that water um, in terms of some absorption and, and utilization of the, the, um, the water. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, they can't digest forage and feedstuffs without adequate water yep. in their digestive system. And then especially if we're talking about calves that uh, maybe have come through a stockyard, they've been commingled, we bring them to a brand new location they don't know where the water is. Mm -hmm. We have to teach them where is the water source. Um, and that, that should be a priority on receiving cattle is maybe putting them in a pen location where we have some water that they can hear that water running or it's in a very visible place for them where they can walk that fence line. They walk by the water trough, have to see it, 
they have access to it and that helps them replenish you know that shrink loss that they've experienced through that commingling and transport process so mm -hmm. getting that in them up front i think is the key okay um and then the other thing that comes to mind is shade you know we've we've developed this system whether we talk about dry lot or we talk about um you know pasture-based systems they got to have adequate shade um, or they're not going to have the gains. And if our, if our goal is a healthy animal with gains, we need shade. Um, the, you know, they, they become heat stress in the mid eighties uh, and just can't handle some of these, these, this preconditioning period from June to September. Um, that's just, it's very stressful on them and their environment to, to not have access to clean high quality shade. Um, it's absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we probably don't have the tendency to, to think about shade up front always. One thing to keep in mind whenever we're thinking about beef cattle and them digesting forages and feedstuffs is that produces heat mm -hmm. when they are when they eat and they have to digest and process that through their system. So they have a daily requirement just to be able to maintain their body temperature at a certain temperature. Now we have the environment that's playing into that, especially this time of year in the summer months as well. So they're trying to stay cool, be able to digest and process those forages and feedstuffs. Now we have the outside temperature that's playing a yeah. role in that too. So it's kind of twofold that that shade helps them be able to kind of back off of that daily heat from the environment, but still be able to process those forages and feedstuffs and use them efficiently. So as we're looking at our, our pasture design, that's an important consideration. If we have them in a dry lot, are we bringing in some artificial shade into that? Do we have an area where they can kind of go during the day or are they out, you know, open in the yeah. sun? So whenever I think about these preconditioning systems, we, we spend so much time thinking about the vaccination protocol, the feedstuffs, the forages. But if we don't have water and we don't have mineral and we don't have shade, these, all these other things probably didn't matter, you know? Um, and then the other thing that, that really comes to mind uh, is the plane of nutrition. So trying to keep them on that same or an increasing plane of nutrition as we get them going, um, that those first seven to 10 days are so tough on them uh, just through that weaning process, you know, not being with their dam, uh, potentially being commingled with, with other calves. But that plain new nutrition, I think, is so important for us to maintain or increase it from the diet that they were on pre-weaning. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I agree, um, especially because it's likely that they've, they've lost some of those nutrients mm -hmm. as we've moved them through these different phases into that preconditioning period. So we're trying to make up that loss yep. during that first seven to 10 days. So that's why it needs to be a higher plane of nutrition than what they came from. Yep. Because... We're trying to make up for lost time, so to speak. And so it, and that brings me back to just thinking about traditionally what we did in the past for preconditioning. Some people only preconditioned for 14, 21, 28 days. They weren't even, you know, at 14, they weren't even back to where they were at weaning, you know. And then at 28 days, they may have just got back to where they were at weaning. Um, so like uh, the, the benefit there may have been some benefit there in terms of um uh in terms of you know they they got a little healthier the immune system's functioning now but we got to get paid for for doing this and once we've gotten them straightened out you know it's just time to go with them um 
with that plain new nutrition, with those forages, with those feedstuffs, um, that's where we can put some additional weight gain on and take them to to, to higher weights. Chris, talking about getting getting your money back, and that's a that's a question that that's a response that we frequently get from farmers. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't see the benefit of precondition. I just want to put my calves in a trailer, take them from the cows, wind them in a trailer, take to the market, and I don't see any benefit. That goes, they don't see the benefit for vaccination. They don't see the benefit for for a better health management. Where's the benefit of this preconditioning? Or what is the incentive that cow-calf cow producers have to, mm -hmm. to do the preconditioning? And this is a little forward, but I would say, one, you have to sell it to someone that, that cares about that. That's thinking, that has the same mind frame uh, that... Hey, I want a healthier animal. I believe in preconditioning. I w believe that those animals are going to be healthier. I want those healthier animals in my system. So I think we one have to, uh, you know, if if we're a smaller producer, I always tell people like you can still work with a larger uh, operator, a medium sized stalker operator, a larger cow calf operator. You know, if if they kind of know the the under background of your calves, the vaccination status, how you've if, if you've really took the time and, and uh, you know, done some management opportunities with your calves, people will want them. But you have to to reach out to other people and, and uh, and you know, and let them know kind of what you're what you've done to the calves and how you prepared them. But, um, you know, to me, like I, I actually uh, think there's there's so many things that we can find literature on, you know, will preconditioning pay, things like that, that the the. The point I was trying to make earlier is uh, there wasn't a calf in uh, 2022. It, you know, if, as long as it was a reasonably successful preconditioning period where we kept the calf alive, there wasn't a calf that preconditioning did not pay in 2023 or even the second half of 2022. Every single time preconditioning would have paid if we kept the calf alive because the price just continues to move higher. Um, so it wasn't even... We didn't necessarily have to really be good at preconditioning. You know, we hit one pound average daily gain. You know, it just paid for itself because the calf feeder calf prices kept moving higher and higher and higher. And I think as we continue through the rest of this decade, you know, even as expansion begins, it'll suck supply out. Uh, those heifers won't be in the feedlot. So we still have a reduced supply moving forward. Feeder calves are going to have a lot of demand for them moving forward, and preconditioning should continue to pay for itself. Value of gains are, you know, $225, $250. It's not the price of the that they're being sold at. It's the difference between uh, the price that they would potentially be sell at, at, at weaning versus the price that they would sell at uh, after preconditioning. So, we need, you know, we have to use the equation to calculate value of gain, but the value gain is very high. Um I can't tell you the last time the I think this value of gain is is higher than what we saw in 2014, 2015 if I just look at it on feeder cow futures or just a market price report. So, I think it pays I th I think it pays to uh, you know, just have healthy animals, take them to where they're, you know, they're feeder cattle now. They're not just feeder calves. Saying all that, obviously, I am still back to the place where uh, if you're a cow calf producer, you have to have a, a, a dedicated area for these animals. You can't just say, I'm going to keep these additional animals on the farm um, and, you know, just feed them hay. 
I, I think with you know, uh, both of you are very involved looking at uh, hay analysis. There's a lot of hay that just that's not of adequate quality to precondition to background. So we have to have the additional acres. Um, so it's important to make that point that preconditioning will pay, but we have to have the the high management in order to keep these animals um, gaining, healthy, and, and functioning in our system. I think another point on that too, Chris, is, you know, you kind of talked about it from the perspective of going forward and we're marketing those animals and it, and it literally paying for itself. But what if you also think about it of looking back at what does preconditioning tell me about my cows and my cow herd. So if I were to retain those calves and background them based on their performance, based on their health, what does that tell me about the dam and her production? So I can also use that information then to make informed decisions about my cow herd, who's productive, am I getting the weaning weights I want? Are they producing and performing in other parts of the chain? So we can think about it from that perspective too, that it tells us something about our management, our genetics of our cows, and are they working for me? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if we go from not preconditioning to preconditioning, uh, I'm asking you to uh, develop new management skills, right? If you've just been selling directly at weaning, you have, you know, during that time period, you have healthy feeder calves. You sell at weaning, you don't get any additional information as we move forward. But um, if I if I if if I get you into a backgrounding uh, preconditioning and backgrounding system, you've got to have additional skill sets here to move forward. It's not just gonna it's not gonna be like those feeder calves were prior to weaning. We got to start looking for you know what's the biggest cost of the beef cattle industry? BRD, you know, um, so. That's that's it's got to be a consideration. It's got to be something that we're able to uh, to, you know, put our hands on those calves and uh, make a difference in their health. Um, You know, one of my things as we start preconditioning is daily health checks. So checking these calves every single day, um, you know, developing a relationship with them as well. If you develop that relationship with them, you check them every day and you're feeding them every day. You're seeing who has, you know, does does someone behaviorally did they change? Um, are they sick? Are they the last one to the feed trough? Are they starting to show symptoms of uh, something respiratory, a respiratory illness, and and then being prompt to uh, to dealing with that respiratory illness? This isn't a as simple as checking the cows every couple days. Uh, this is something every single day, even on Sundays, we have to check those feeder calves to uh, to make sure they're they're in good health and uh, moving around well. Uh, in, in addition to daily health checks, I'm a big proponent of, uh, you know, as animals get sick or if they're not, if we're in such a large group that there's bullying going on uh, and some animals just do not have uh, the gain that uh, is adequate, then to sorting those animals off. And, you know, I already said that there's an acreage limitation, but I think it's absolutely critical we think about a sick pen. Uh, for those that, you know, they have a respiratory illness and then a needs improvement pen, those animals just need uh, some additional focus. Uh, they, they don't have the same thrift that uh, uh, some of these other calves do. So um, I'm a big proponent of a needs improvement pen and then a sick pen. Um, sick pen, we're just isolating sick calves. You know, it, it does, you know, just kind of putting it back to humans. You wouldn't want to send your child to a daycare that has 
you know, a whole bunch of other sick animals um, and then being interacting with them. So um, I think that those are two really critical things. And think about where feeder calf prices are today. You know, if they're if we're talking about five weight feeder calves and they're, uh, you know, 1250 per feeder calf, you know, I feel like in a sick pen um, where we, we have focused health care, we have focused feedstuffs, forages, we can spend a lot on those forages in a sick pen to keep them alive, to keep them where they can potentially get on that truck um, where we don't have to go back through the stockyard with those uh, those animals that they're not sick anymore, but uh, that you know they slowly made their way out of the sick pen. Let's get them back on the truck, whether we're in the sick pen or needs improvement pen, and get them gaining at a rate where uh, you know they can rejoin the general population, as I call it. Uh, you know, talk, you talked a little bit about identifying those calves, getting additional information about the dam. You know, do our, do our sick animals or needs improvement animals, uh, you know, now we have information to go back to that dam. Is she producing calves that are always in needs improvement pen? Right. Um, you know, it's giving us additional culling criteria there, um, uh, as we move forward. Record keeping becomes a well, it's always a very important aspect of cattle production. Absolutely. And, you know, if this is only for, for 60 days, um, you know, it allows us to potentially look at that animal, uh, you know, right after calving, potentially sell it as a pair. Uh, because right now, pairs are uh, very, very high uh, in terms of price. So how does preconditioning looks into in a, in a small farm? especially when we don't have calving season. Mm-hmm. We don't have a good control in the calving season, which this, is probably the norm. Well, this probably should have started at the beginning. Uh, good question for the beginning. <laughs> if we don't have a calving season, we can still precondition calves. Like, uh, you know, I think it becomes uh, very important that we understand that there's not as many buyers for ununiform preconditioned calves. Um, I think you're probably going to try to look to market them to a, uh, a nearby stopper stalker operator that, uh, that, that has a lot of need for, uh, for preconditioned feeder calves, healthy feeder calves. Um, but, uh, I mean, the majority of our cow calf operations in the Southeast are, are definitely year round calving. So I think, um, just thinking about that, you know, I, I think a lot of times they're not going to even consider or focus on preconditioning, I still think they can. Um, it's a, it's going to be a non-traditional preconditioning program. They may precondition three or four times a year. Um, so what are your thoughts on that, Kim? Yeah, I think that with a, a year-round calving system, it, it can become a little more challenging. Um, even with a year-round system, though, a lot of times there will be kind of a group that's closer together. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when we talk about trying to help somebody transition to that defined calving season, we say to start there, when is the time of the year when you have the majority of the calves? Um, and it, looking within that group for that uniformity, Chris, you know, could be a starting place of, I want to background these calves. We could start with those that are most alike if we were thinking about doing that on our operation or even from that marketing standpoint of maybe I know a person that'll custom background these for me and I start with those just to see how they do. Mm-hmm. So it can be something you decide to do on your farm or you can work to identify somebody that could could background those cattle for you. 
And whenever we, we are talking and thinking about backgrounding, it is important to, uh, you know, to, to have potential buyers lined up because there's going to be at certain weights where they begin to balk uh, in terms of purchasing your calves. They're not necessarily going to be interested as, as we get them potentially too large. You know, if they're going to purchase them uh, and put them on a load, you know, they potentially have commission if they're going to market, uh, you know, heifers there at 775, steers 875 uh, in terms of weight. You know, they have to, they're going to need to put some additional weight on them um, as well. So um, those are just considerations to make. And, you know, just in terms of purchasing feedstuffs for smaller producers, you know, it's a lot more difficult to get the byproduct feedstuffs in order to precondition. Uh, it's just a general thought I had. They're going to have to use a lot of uh, limited supplementation strategies because uh, they just can't buy at a price uh, typically that can be economical. So they're going to be relying more on forages. Definitely so. So planning planning is an important aspect of this. So we've talked a lot about nutrition. We've, we've talked a lot about management and approaches and different strategies. We talked about marketing. We didn't touch much. We mentioned health a little bit, but we didn't touch much on health. And actually for many people, when we, when we bring the topic preconditioning, they are specifically thinking about the, the vaccination, the vaccination protocol of those calves, uh, specifically just prior to sending to the sheepyards. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the vaccine protocols that are more recommended for preconditioning? So I would say um, as far as vaccines go, you brought up an important point, which is one, whenever we talk about preconditioning or backgrounding, a lot of times that's what people first think about. So rather than, I guess, discussing specific vaccines that someone might follow or a protocol that they might follow, what I would say is, one, go ahead and be thinking forward about how you plan to market the cattle, like Chris said, because whoever you're marketing those cattle through, they may have a specific vaccine protocol that they would prefer that you follow for those cattle. Um, and so that may start back a certain number of months prior to weaning for those first round of vaccines. And then again, at weaning on those cattle. So one would be thinking about marketing Two would be to discuss with your veterinarian about potential protocols that you could use. What are things within your area or your part of the Southeast that you may need to be vaccinating for specifically could be something as well to think about. So for me, I would say use that as the starting point and then go from there. Fantastic. That was amazing because I was, I was thinking about it in the same lines is uh, so many people, you know, they are, they become in love with their vaccines and that's kind of what they're, they want other people to follow a very similar protocol to um, kind of what they're looking for. If they're, you know, if, if we're a smaller producer, medium sized producer and we're selling to another stocker operator, they're going to want you to use their protocol because when they go to market those calves, they need to be on similar protocols. Mm -hmm. So they're, um, so whenever they're offering those cattle, they've offered them appropriately. Um, and then the other thing would be is, you know, wean them long enough. You know, I think uh, one of the main reasons we the, the industry has moved from 45 to 60 days is because whenever it was 45 days, there was a lot of calves that were getting on a truck that were only 34, 35 day weaned. So now that if we're in a 60 day protocol, now they're at least 45 days weaned. Um, and that's where the, you know, 
the cutoff was in terms of a lot of this data, uh, in terms of preconditioning calves, 45 days was where, hey, that was a very healthy calf that did not have those health risks. Um, if we just look at it from a you know a health, additional health risk uh, place, 45 days, they didn't have the health risk that the, uh, the those that were shipped at weaning, 14, 28, 35, um, 45 was the cutoff. We've covered it, but we haven't specifically talked about it. Is the additional stress, like even in the preconditioning system, they're still going through stressors. They're going, the anxiety is anxiety to move into a new environment is still there. It's just so critical whenever we think about uh, the, the handling of the animals. We've got to vaccinate them probably if it's a stalker operation on arrival. And then we, we have to go back and boost those vaccinations, potentially, you know, uh, you know, 30 to uh, 42 days late or something along those lines. Um, it's really critical that we, we do implement some uh, low-stress cattle handling. We implement, uh, we try to be efficient in terms of the number of times that we're working those feeder calves, uh, noise management, staying calm, because anytime we stress those animals, you know, we're putting more stress on that immune system. And if, if our goal is to maximize gain, we want to have a stress management plan with all the people that are in there working in that cow pen. Fantastic. So we've covered a lot of information, and I think there is still more to to talk about, especially on the planning side. And now, where can we get more information in terms of preconditioning for our listeners that are interested in learning more? Yeah, great question. So um, Alabama Extension has several resources related to backgrounding cattle. One, just on some of the research that we talked about today that we've done specifically on those different nutritional management systems. Um, if you go to our Extension website, which is alabamabeefsystems.com, we have publications on that topic. Outside of those Extension resources, I would also say, one, just talk to people. So talk to other farmers that you know that may be backgrounding their cattle try to learn from their experiences, also going to those marketing groups and trying to learn more about their processes, how they go about putting together groups of cattle um, and building that relationship with those people are, are ways to build resources outside of just additional reading material. That's fantastic. And actually looking for opportunities because from those inquiries, you can emerge, partnerships can emerge. And as always, consult our local extension agent uh, and rely on your extension system because we have very good information and can help you establishing this those uh, preconditioning protocols. You've got to develop a plan for your system. You know, everybody's system is going to be uh, completely different. So I would, uh, you know, get a sheet of paper, start writing it down in terms of what you would like to implement. Have your own plan for for your preconditioning plan um build your system the kind of what you think is best where you're going to minimize uh the stress you're going to minimize health risk and you can potentially get optimal gains some good gains on these feeder calves uh but just start with a sheet of paper share it with other cattle, cattle producers that are preconditioning uh to gain ideas from them you know uh anytime we can work with someone else uh on a like project uh we're going to be you know we're going to be a lot better off working with others in our community that have like minds so um that that would kind of be my advice and and goal moving forward in preconditioning system fantastic well kim appreciate 
uh, participation on our podcast today, on our Cow Talks podcast. Chris, welcome back. I'm looking forward for the next season of Cow Talks. Let's get after it. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. I'm fired up. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this Cow Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas.ufl.edu. Or find us on our social media, uf.forages on Instagram, uf.forage team on Facebook, or uf.ifas.forages on YouTube.